turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Exodus once again, tonight to verse chapter 25, verse 23, it's where we will pick up the account, Exodus 25, beginning to read at verse 23, being reminded of the fact that this hymn we just sang, that all that we have needed, God hath provided, is on visual display for the Israelites in this table for the bread. God was indicating his great provision that he would indeed provide for them. Exodus 25, starting then at verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood, Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make it And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. The table shall be carried with ease. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Then once again, if you go to Exodus chapter 37, we've just read the command to build. In Exodus 37, We read of the fulfillment of that in the making of the table, Exodus 37, verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. Cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. As far the reading of... God's Word. Let's again pray and ask for God's blessing upon it tonight. Dear Lord, we thank you for those words of Scripture that you have given us. We pray that you will help us as we delve into these words tonight, that you will be with Pastor Bob, that he will help to enlighten us as to their deeper and true meaning for us. We would like to thank you also at this time for the the STARS leaders and the importance they play and the work that they do with the girls throughout the year. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to look at three things regarding the table, kind of the same pattern we've been following. 
This is sort of all about a pattern that is to be followed here. So even our sermons kind of follow that same outline over the course of the past several Sundays. First of all, we have the table's design. Secondly, the table's purpose, which may not necessarily be quite as obvious as one may think. And then thirdly, the table's implications. What what does this mean, this table that God made? He wanted it made. He wanted it made exactly as he showed Moses on the mountain in order that Israel, his Old Testament people, that Old Testament church, might worship him in the way that he desired. So what does God provide today? And and what are the, the implications for us as we gather? We don't have this table. This is not part of our worship. So how is it that, that this table is, is functioning within our worship today? First of all, the design. Um, we could mention the, the size, and it's not large. This is not big. Uh, if you would imagine perhaps the average size coffee table uh, in your home, that probably the one that sits not next to a chair, but the one in front of a couch. Now, maybe your particular home doesn't have it, but you can probably remember maybe your parents or grandparents that in front of the couch, okay, there, there was this table. And it basically fits that description. It is three foot long. That's how long it is. It's about a foot and a half wide, and it ranges somewhere between two feet and three feet high. Now, we know... The, the height of it, but it translates into about 24, 25 inches if, if we take the cubits and translate them into inches. So it, it's not very big, okay? This long, this wide, that's perhaps about this high off the ground. It's an unusual structure if you stop to think about it. Hey, we, we've had a brazen altar on the outside. We've had a, a laver on the outside. This morning when we looked into the tabernacle, when, as God invited us in through his word, we saw the, the lampstand, and although we're not given dimensions, as I mentioned this morning, with all of its branches and all of its ornateness, okay, with its almonds and buds and blossoms, um, it, it, it still must have been quite a striking piece of furniture when one stops to think about it. But, but yet this table seems to be almost oddly misplaced. It seems so small. There isn't much to it. Uh, outside of the, those things that are mentioned as far as its size, we know it has some sort of molding, some sort of edge around it, and that then has a molding of gold around it as well. We know that there are rings at the four corners. The rings are there for the purpose of carrying this, which is, once again, rather interesting. If we go back to this morning, there is no provision made for how this lampstand is to be carried. There, there are no rings. There are no poles for the lampstand. And, so, uh, and yet... A point of emphasis that I that I failed to make this morning is that it was of one piece that lampstand, and and so you, you, when you think of that, there is an incredible.
incredible amount of talent, artistic work that those who made the lampstand must have had to make this out of one piece of gold. It's not like we have the the central shaft and then we attach branches and then we glue on blossoms. It was all to be one. And yet when we come to the table, relatively small, it's pretty simple in its design. Certainly not ornate. Yes, it has the rim, but as as many commentators comment upon the rim, they they believe it probably has a uh, a flat, as as I mentioned, the coffee table would, and then the rim actually forms a, an edge, so that which is placed upon it is is held in, it's contained with an edging of gold. Now there are also dishes, there are plates that are associated with this table as well, and yet relatively simple in its design. Second thing to note about that which God has told us here in in Exodus chapter 25 is the material out of which it's made. This is going to be made out of acacia wood, now overlaid with gold. The lampstand this morning was not made out of wood and then overlaid. It was made out of pure gold. That's why it took a whole talent, a whole 75 pounds of that gold. The table, however, is overlaid, made out of acacia wood. Uh, Mrs. Wording, this week, found a a spoon made out of acacia wood. And uh, we have a similar one from, from home in regards to that. And I'll leave these up here so you adults and kids can kind of get the feel of it. But but there is an obvious difference in density between the two. Even though they're almost the same size, this one would weigh, I would say, at least twice, if not three times as much as this one. It's a dense wood. It's heavy. Remember as we talked last time, uh, last week, about the the brazen altar, there's the idea of of some durability that is going on here, some strength. This is is going to last for years. God is not designing something to fall apart in ten years. Now if you think about the way in which many things are built in our society today, okay, many things of supposed wood furniture, they're not built to last, are they? They're, they're built for a period of time, and then it's almost they're built to fall apart, so you build it again. God is designing and making use of a wood that was there for durability. It was going to last as long as God needed it to last. This was never going to fall apart on its own. That's why he chose for them. Use acacia wood. This is what you have to use. I want that particular wood to be used. Once again, I'll leave them here and you can get the sense of that as well. You can also get the sense when you you just feel that wood that the other, the lighter one, is going to split in no time. And you put it out in the elements it would not take much to do so. This one is not going to do it. It's going to last. 
God said, I want you to make me a table that's going to last, that's going to have strength, that's going to have durability, and then I want you to overlay it with pure gold. Third thing to note is the placement. Once again, let's be reminded of the fact that that God in these chapters for the people of Israel is opening the door of this tabernacle. He's pulling back the curtain. These are things that they will somewhat see, Levites will when they transport, but most of the people of Israel will never set their eyes upon these various pieces of furniture. But he is giving it to them in his word. His word is descriptive to them so that they might see through the word that which is being done. And so as we look into that tabernacle, okay, as, as it was set up, remember the, the door always faces the east. The gate of the courtyard faced east. The door of the tabernacle faced east. As we stand looking east, okay, the lampstand would be on our right-hand side. And the table would be on our left. But as a priest entering, okay, the lampstand is on your left and the table is on your right. They're opposite one another. They're across from one another. In fact, the idea behind the lampstand is that the lampstand is there to shed light upon the table. That, that it's set up not to face the altar of incense, not to face the most holy place, not to face the veil, not to face towards the Ark of the Covenant, but God said, I want you to place the candlestick, the lampstand, directly opposite the table of showbread. So it's the idea of the light of the lampstand shining on the table. So the table is there to be illuminated by the lampstand. That's where God wanted it placed. Now those are just the basic information out of Exodus chapter 25 for us, just so we we have a concept of, of the design of this particular table. We would ask the question, what's its purpose? Well, God in verse 30 gives us its basic purpose. Look at verse 30 with me. And you shall, Exodus 25, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Here's the table. What's the purpose of the table? To hold bread. It has no other function but to hold the bread. That is the purpose of these verses. That is the purpose that that God tells Moses, I want you to bake this. It is the purpose for which God showed Moses the pattern for this table. Hold bread. I mean, you think about that, it's sort of like, boy, brazen altar. Boy, that had a quite a function, didn't it? It was there for all those sacrifices, that atonement, that, that 
picture of justification, that labor there made out of those mirrors of the women and there for the, the washing and that ceremonial washing of the priest, that, that picture of sanctification for us. Lampstand, pure gold, shedding light upon this dark tabernacle, this covered tent. Make for me a table. Oh, but it's going to have some elaborate purpose. But something wonderful is going to take place here. What are we going to do with the table, Lord? Just make me a table to hold the bread. It's its purpose. But as we think about that, this idea of to hold the bread, to place the bread of the presence on it, there is also the idea that, that more than holding, that, that the table is there to display. William Tyndale, when he translated the scriptures into English, chose a different term than bread of the presence. It's the term that begins to show up for, for those of you who perhaps are reading this in the King James and you're going... Bread of presence, it doesn't say bread of presence. It says table of showbread or bread of the showbread. Maybe you have a new King James that has that same kind of wording. Because that's the other version. That's the other way we hear about this table. It's called the table of showbread. It's the table to display the bread. It's the table to show the bread. It's function. It's purpose is to show forth the bread. Not just to hold it, not just to have the bread upon it, but to show the bread, to display it. The phrase, when you look it up in Hebrew, of the bread of the presence, has to do with the bread of the face. This is the bread of the face. Does that mean? You have to remember that in the design of this tabernacle, as we move from the courtyard to the holy place, to the most holy place, we come into the very presence of God. And, it, and it's not unlike Scripture to use that as being in the face of God. And that the face of God is directed towards his people. He sets his face towards us. That bread is in the face of God. It was that which God was looking upon. So there is this idea of, of lifting up this bread. Now, now what's the bread? Well, Let's go to, keep your finger here at Exodus 25. Go to Leviticus chapter 24 for just a moment. You may want to take a little piece of paper because we're going to come back to Leviticus chapter 24 in a, in a few moments and a little bit later in the message as well. Go to 24 verse 6. Uh, let's start at 5, I'm sorry. 5 and 6. You shall take fine flour, bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles 
six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So we have piles on this table of bread. It is there to display the bread. It is there to show the bread. What is the bread? The bread is in two stacks of six, twelve total. It doesn't take a a great imagination. You don't even have to imagine. You, You understand immediately what is being represented there. That every one, each one of those loaves represents one of the tribes of Israel. So that before the face of God, His people are constantly there. Priest is going to come and go. High priest only enters once a year. Does God forget about His people the rest of the time? Is it only when the priest enters that God says, Oh yeah, my people. Is it only when the high priest comes in wearing... His breastplate of righteousness with the twelve precious stones, carrying the two onyx stones on his shoulders with inscribed with six tribes of Israel on one, six tribes of Israel on other. Is that the only time God thinks of his people? No, there is the bread of the presence. Always before him. His people are always before him. Bread of the presence, the showbread. But if we think about this table a different way, it's to hold, it's to display. What God is really saying is that the table in itself is secondary. The table is not primary. It's there as a support. It's there to to provide a place upon which to set the bread. It is not forming a primary function, but a secondary function, secondary to the bread. We could phrase it this way. It's not about the table. It's about the bread. That's what it's all about. But the bread needs the table. God desires that in his worship, a table, something of, we would say perhaps, a secondary nature, serving a very limited function, God says, I still want that to be used in my worship. I don't want that to be discarded. I don't want you to just take this bread and set it on any old table. I don't want you to take it and set it on a chair. I don't want you to take it and take it out of something out of your house and bring that into my tabernacle and set the bread on it. I want you to make me a table. Not as primary, but as secondary. So God is concerned in his worship, not only about that which we may think is primary, but also that which is secondary. He's communicating to the people of Israel and to us that everything involved in his worship is of importance. It's of importance. 
Now, this sort of goes into the implications, but seeing I'm here, let, let me just stop okay, and, and give an example. Let us suppose that tonight we close the piano, that we're not going to sing from the piano. i got a guy here with bagpipes, and we're going to sing to bagpipes. Go. I don't think that's going to work out real good. I don't think we're going to sing real well to bagpipes. I don't, I mean, maybe if we trained on them for a few weeks somewhere, maybe if we met in the gym or met before church for a period of time, but really, Bob, you're just going to bring out bagpipes and we're going to sing Come Thou Almighty King to bagpipes? I don't think, oh. So something that is actually secondary, that which provides support to our worship, actually is of great importance, isn't it? Because, because we can say, well, we can still sing the song. I don't think it's going to be really edifying. I don't think it's going to be real glorifying to God. We're going to really struggle through this thing. That which is secondary, the instrument by which we sing, is important to the Lord. It's the table. And if you think about it, there are a lot of those secondary things that come into play in the worship of God. And God doesn't just dismiss those. God doesn't just say those are unimportant. To the Lord, the table is of as importance as the lampstand. It gets as many verses as the Ark of the Covenant is. Even though it's one purpose simply display the bread to call our attention to the bread. Look at the bread. That makes us think for a moment, doesn't it? What is so significant about this bread? Okay, in the worship of God, he's, he's ordering the worship of Israel. Until the time of his son. This is what God is decreeing. This is how I am to be worshipped until the fulfillment of all of this takes place in my son. The coming of Christ is not a secondary thought. God had it planned. God had it purposed. So the tabernacle is only temporary for a time period until Christ comes. But why in the worship of God... Why is he ordering that in his worship there be bread? Maybe we, you know, we had to think through, why is there an altar? Why is there blood? Oh, for atonement. Why is there water involved in his worship that's placed in the labor? Oh, for washing. Why is there oil placed in the lampstand? Oh, to burn, to give light. Christ, light of the world. The work of the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts and lives. Oh, I see what God is doing. But bread? What's bread got to do with the worship of God? Well, first of all, bread is the basic food component of life. When, when, you, you know, we, we, when we pray, give us, Lord, our daily bread, 
we're thinking in terms of bread being the basic sustenance of life. Now, when you know the old days, they threw somebody in prison or uh, you know down in the hold of the ship, and what they give them? Give them bread and water. Well, why bread and water? Because they can be sustained for life. They're they're not going to lose their life. They're they're going to get enough out of the bread and water to survive. It it brings it down to the basic component, that which is necessary, that which is needed. The Lord is constantly viewing the need of His people for bread. The need of those twelve tribes to be daily sustained. To be given that which they need. God doesn't need that reminder. Israel did. This this bread is not for God to, oh yeah, the Israelites. This was for the Israelites to be reminded of the fact God is always looking out for us. God is always providing for us. God is always caring for us. Why? Because there's 12 loaves of bread sitting on a table in the holy place, set before the face of God. God knows my need. God knows what provisions I need for life. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. God knows the needs of His people. This is, this is so tender, so compassionate, so beautiful of a reminder to the Israelites that as they come to God's presence to worship, they can be reminded of the fact that their God knows their needs. I, I think we know that intellectually when we come into worship. We, we, we probably you know, could answer that question from a factual point of view. But I, the, the purpose for that bread was not for a factual knowledge. It was for the experiential knowledge. The Lord knows what I need. And here, God will provide me that which I need. See, that's what happens when we worship. We come as needy people. God says, I'll provide what you need. It's a table of bread. But bread was also significant in terms of fellowship. The breaking of bread, Acts chapter 2, is the sign of fellowship. To have a meal together, to eat together, to break bread together, was the sign of communion, the sign of fellowship. It was the sign for those Israelites with that bread sitting on that table that God, the Lord God, desired to have fellowship, to commune with them. That the purpose of this worship is for God to draw near 
to them and for them to draw near to God. This is a coming together, this this idea of worship. That's what was taking place in the tabernacle. God, the living God of heaven and earth, is coming to meet with His people. And we are coming to meet with our God. We're coming to join with Him in communion, in fellowship. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place as we worship. That's what God was picturing for them in that Old Testament tabernacle with a table of showbread. Let me go to point three, the table's implications. The purpose of worship is to display Christ. See, you you probably were already thinking when we were on the bread that the bread, well, of course, it's about Christ. Now, if that connection is difficult for you, turn with me to the Gospel according to John. We'll just stay in John chapter 6. And just see, once again, John's John's the apostle who's making the connection here between He came and tabernacled. So we're going to find in the Gospel of John a lot of things about this tabernacle structure of Exodus that John is seeing. I see that in Christ. Right? We had it this morning. We have a light in the tabernacle. What does John say? Jesus is the light of the world. Now notice how this happens in John chapter 6 in regards to bread. Go down to verse 32, John 6, 32. We've just fed the 5,000. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Here's Jesus right present with them. The bread of life. Go down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, there is so much tied into that, is there not? Okay, there's the picture of communion tied into that. Right? There's the picture of the manna that God was providing for them tied into that. Okay? But he's also just looking at his own life, his own giving of his flesh as that which is that basic component of spiritual life. We cannot live eternally without the gift of the bread of life. 
So we don't have a table with showbread on it. We don't have that. We don't, we don't remanufacture that table in its exact size and set it out here on the stage and put on those 12 loaves of bread and keep them there with trays and a rim and everything else. Why? Because the fulfillment of that has been found in Christ. Christ is that bread. But how does that function as far as all of Israel? As Christians, what are we? We are those who are united to Christ. Hey, we were talking about this in, in uh, our confession class this morning as well with the high schoolers. You know, hi, what, what would be the basic definition of a Christian? And, and if we follow our confession of faith, it would be this. A Christian is someone who is united to Christ. See, in that bread of the presence, fulfilled in Christ, we are displayed. Because we are united with Christ. Just as you know, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and then he turns to us and says, you are the light of the world. There, there is a sense in which Christ, the, the Lord is saying, Christ is the bread of life. We find our fulfillment in worship when we display Christ. And that's what we're to do. That's our function. We're the table, you see. We are the table that is here to display Christ. That's what worship should be about. We ought to display Christ. We ought to hear Christ speaking. We ought to be focused on Christ. That's what worship needs to center on. God designed a whole lampstand to simply shed light upon the bread, upon Christ. He designs a table for the purpose of displaying the bread. We're here. See, it's not about us. We're secondary. We're secondary in this worship experience thing. Christ is primary. It's not about displaying our talents. It's not about displaying our abilities. It's not about displaying this or displaying that. It is about displaying Christ. That's why, thankfully, and I hope we continue the practice, we do not applaud when somebody sings a song, when somebody plays a particular piece on the piano or an instrument or whatever. We do not applaud. Why? Because that would detract us from Christ. Christ is to be on display. That for which we play, that for which we sing, that for which we give, that for which we preach, that for which we read, that for which we do in worship is to display Christ. That's what it's to be about. 
Second, worship then needs to focus on the word. Now you, you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Bob, that's a contradiction. You just said worship should display Christ. Now you're saying that's why worship needs to center on the word. It's not a contradiction because Christ is the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. John, what did Jesus say to Satan in that first temptation? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So in our worship, Christ is made central. Christ is made the primary focus when the word is of primary focus. When the word is on display. Some of you have probably attended churches before in which perhaps there there was never even a scripture reading. The Bible was never read. There may be some sort of homily, a little story that's told, but there's no preaching of the word. There's no explanation of the word. That's why we don't have 10-minute sermons and an hour of singing. Because it is the Word, it is Christ that is to be the central focus of that which we do. Think about this. We come into God's presence. We're able to enter in to the very presence of God Who do you think ought to get the most time? Would it not make sense that God should? Not about us. It's the consumer mentality of the 21st century. It is not about us. It is about the Lord. Not about big crowds. It's about the Lord. It's not about feeling excited. It's about the Lord. It's about that awesome privilege of hearing the Lord speak to us. Third, worship is to be fresh. Where'd you get that one? Oh, that's that Leviticus passage. Let's go back to that a moment. Leviticus chapter 24. Worship is to be fresh. Notice I didn't say innovative. I said fresh. Exodus chapter, or Leviticus, excuse me, 24. Let's read it again. Let's take five through nine. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. 
since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. See what they did? On the day before the Sabbath, they baked new loaves. On the Sabbath day, the priest goes in, he takes the old loaves from off the table, he puts new fresh loaves on, and they take the old loaves out, and they eat them. God never wants his worship to grow old, to grow stale. It is always to be fresh. But the bread was always the same. The newness and freshness didn't come from Aaron saying, you know, we've been eating this bread for a long time. Let's put some raisins in the bread. So next week when we get the bread, we'll have raisins in our bread. Let's add some walnuts in the bread. Let's add some let's add some pudding in the bread. Now it's the same old bread. It's the same bread. Week after week after week. But it's always fresh. God's mercy, which is the same mercy that has been poured out years and years and years. God's grace, which is poured out. God's love, which is poured out. It's the same love, the same mercy, the same grace. And yet the hymn writer says, Ha, it's new every morning. Every day I experience that forgiveness of God. And it's new and it's fresh, even though it's the same forgiveness. See, as we come into worship, yes, there is the repetition. We do the same things. We do them because there is that regulative principle. This is the bread that I want made. Don't add raisins. Don't add dates. Don't add walnuts. Just make me the same bread. That's the bread I want. My provision to you is this. It's fresh every week. Every week. See, and that depends on your perspective, doesn't it? You walk in and you go, same old worship. It is. This is fresh. This is new. Never been done before. We're doing the same thing. The old loaves have been taken out. God's provided new. Every Sabbath as they would come in and take out that bread, they're reminded of the fact that God provided for them for that past week. As they bring in the new, they're reminded that God will provide for them in the week that lies ahead. Lastly, worship to involve every member. Each of us is to focus on Christ, not call attention to ourselves. Each of us as the member of the body of Christ, each of us as a 
as an integral part fulfilling our function. And sometimes, yes, that is a secondary function. That's all of our functions when it comes to worship. But all are needed, all are necessary. We need four legs on the table. We need four rings around the table. We need a rim of and an edge. We need a molding of gold. Everyone is to be involved in this worship. Children, adults, everyone. This is what we do. Worship. Father, thank you again. You've provided Christ, the bread of life. We're not the bread of life, but we are to display the one who is the bread. Worship is not about us, but we're to display the one who is the bread of life. We're to show forth Christ in all of his excellencies, in all of his beauty. Lord, sometimes we sing that hymn, Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you are my God. Lord, what an awesome thing it is that you allow us who have been justified, who have been sanctified, to enter into your presence to worship you. May we always understand. May we always be in awe and humble by the privilege of worshiping you. We always find it fresh. Why? As we enter into your presence. In the name of Christ we pray. And God's people say, Amen.